to Romans chapter 12. Um, if you didn't bring a Bible, there is one in the pew in front of you, page 948 is uh, the text. This, this morning, um, we're going to be moving quite a bit, uh, moving around quite a bit in our Bibles, so if you can have your fingers ready to be moving, that would be a, a good thing. Um, we're going to be looking only at one verse this morning. Um, actually, we're going to be looking at half a verse, and actually, we're going to be looking only at a third of a verse this morning. Um, we're going to be looking at the first part of verse 9. First part of verse 9 from Romans 12. You know, there, there are three commands in this verse, and we're merely going to look at the, the first command, which says this, let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. Now, our text is so short this morning, we can memorize it. Just a short little time here, if you just all say it together with me. Let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. Okay, so now now here's the quiz, right? We're not looking, we're not looking at our Bibles, right? We're not looking up front, right? Here it goes. Let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. You think you got it? John Underhill, you think you got it? Go ahead. Good, good. How about Rich Garden? You think you got it? Good. Wendy, you think you got it? Okay, how about, how about a child? How about Austin? Do you think you got it? Go ahead. Okay, Austin, how about that, Austin? All right, we got it. And you have just entered into my sermon prep this week. As I have in my mind all week long, just thinking about let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. I've been asking myself, what does that mean? What are some biblical examples? What are, what are some examples from life? And I simply this morning want to share from my meditation on this passage this week. Now, it's our custom uh, working through Romans to work to go about a paragraph each week. Uh, it's taken about two years to get from Romans chapter one through Romans chapter eleven. Um, but in Romans twelve, I've decided to s- slow down because this is really the heart of application. And I hate just to to zip through this right paragraph by paragraph. We'd be done in two weeks. So we look nine through thirteen and fourteen and following. And, and I'd rather have us just sit and linger. Just with these these verses. And so I see no reason that we need to hurry through this chapter. We're just going to take take things slow. And so actually what my messages are going to be more topical than they are um, really exposition. But we're just going to take them. We're going to be try to tie them into Romans and try to tie them into our own our own life. The title of my message this morning is Let Love Be Genuine. Um, It's obvious why. And uh, before we dig into the text, though, we need to remind ourselves of the context because if we forget the context, this verse is mere moralism. It's simply an exhortation to love without any, any bearing. It's, a, it's an exhortation that anyone in the world can receive. It's really which makes it non-Christian. But this exhortation is distinctly Christian because it's a call of response. It's a call of response to the mercy of God. Look back in chapter 12 and verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God... To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The mercies of God are everything that Paul's been explaining from chapters 1 through chapter 11. 
And it begins in chapters 1 through 3 with our sin, which is deep and dark and far worse than we know. And our sin has brought upon us the wrath of God. Romans 1 verse 18, that God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. We can't get out from under the sin. We can't get out from under the wrath of God by ourselves. Right? Our, our works won't, won't stack up. Romans 3.20 says, By the works of a law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. We're not going to be justified by, by doing enough good. We're under God's law and, and without hope. But by the mercies of God, he didn't leave us in his sin he brought us out of our sin, which is 321 is the is a big hinge. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. That is the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And that that begins in chapter three, verse 21, continues all the way through chapter five, speaking of our salvation, the, the bright light that shines in the darkness, how Christ Jesus has become our sufficient sacrifice, that we simply believe in Jesus. And by God's pure mercy, we are justified before God's sight, and we have peace with God. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This comes through faith. comes through faith alone. Not because of our works, not because of our righteousness, not because of the strength of our love, but by the mercies of God. And God's mercy changes us and transforms us from being enemies of God. Chapter 5, verse 10. Hating His ways to being servants of God. Chapter 6, verse 17, who longed to walk in his ways. Look there, chapter 6, verse 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. There's the transfer. We were slaves of sin, but God in his grace through faith in him have transferred us to be slaves of righteousness. And it's not easy. We're not walking that way perfectly. It's what Romans 7 is, is all about. It's about the struggle. But if you're in Christ this morning, you can be secure in his love. Chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's a security there. And the struggle is really a sign that you are secure. And we stand firm on God's sovereign promises, as, as Romans 9 through 11 show that God's word hasn't failed in the past. Romans 9, 6, his God's word won't fail in the future because, as chapter 11, verse 29 says, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, cannot revoke them. They will stand. And because of the mercies of God, that's why we love. In fact, the Apostle John said it this way, 1 John four nineteen: we love because he first loved us. And Paul's really saying the same thing, that just different words. He's been merciful to us, and God's calling us to love one another with a genuine love. Now, it almost goes without saying that this is the foremost command in all the Bible. When Jesus was asked which of the commandments are the greatest, he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the greatest task that we have in the world is to, to love God with all of our being, and here it is, in response, we should love our neighbor as ourselves. That's Romans 12, 9. In response to the mercies of God, in response to our love for God, or it's an expression of our love for God, we love others. Now, a love for God and a love for others are high and lofty commands that are difficult, but they're the utmost of importance. Paul, Paul says that the whole law, Jesus says, the whole law and the prophets hang on these two. In other words, right, you give me a command, 
And I can probably show you whether that hangs on loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, or whether it loves on loving your neighbor as yourself. And particularly, if you look here in chapter 12, verse 9, let love be genuine. He's talking about a love for each other, a love for your neighbor. Love others as you would want them to love you. Paul's calling us simply to have our love be genuine. Now, one of the keys to understanding what Paul's getting at in our text is to understand this literally. We can see a literal translation, several major translations, like the New American Standard says this, let love be without hypocrisy. The King James, the New King James says this, let love be without hypocrisy. The Christian Standard Bible says, let love be without hypocrisy. That's a a literal translation of our text. Without hypocrisy, unhypocritical, unhypocritical. That's kind of like a double negative, and that's why the ESV here just gives the positive. Let it be genuine. Let it be a non-hypocritical love. And just to hang your thoughts this morning, I want to think about hypocritical love. You ask, what what does it look like? Well, it's love with words denied with actions. The prime example is, is Judas. So you can turn with me to John chapter 12. Again, if you're in Pew Bibles, we're talking page 898, John chapter 12. It's a familiar story to many of us. Joe Richter was here last week. He, he read from this passage. He's from Farms International Ministry. He read from this passage because it has much to teach us about caring for the poor, but it also has much to teach us about what hypocritical love looks like. John chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover... Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. You can picture the scene. He's he's there in Bethany. It's the hometown of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. They were brothers and sisters. And he is, he's in their home. Lazarus had just been risen from the dead. And so there's kind of like this, this reunion. And I trust in some regards a, a celebration that they were together. And at one point, Mary takes this expensive perfume and pours it out on the feet of Jesus. Wipes the hair, wipes the perfume away with her hair. I don't know if you, you but I've never seen that happen. It's not so common today. It wasn't common back then in Bible times. You know, it's not like we can say, oh, yeah, well, this was a common practice. This was not a common practice. If, you, if you'd have been there, you would have seen how strange it was. You would have seen that it was a sign of affection. If you'd have been there, you wouldn't have missed what was happening because the fragrance, as it says, it would fill the whole house. And Judas didn't miss what was going on, and he expressed his displeasure with this uh, display of affection. Verse 4, But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, who was about to betray him, said, Why was this anointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Judas expressed with his mouth his great love for the poor. He said that Mary was wasting precious perfume. It could have been used a different way, a better way. Help the poor. And I think Judas had a point. 300 denarii is a lot of money. could have helped a lot of people. All wasted, if you will, on one. But John's comment then in verse 6 shows everything, reveals his heart. Here's hypocritical love. He said this, not because he cared about the poor, you can put it in there, not because he loved the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself. 
to what was put into it. Now, no doubt this had taken place before where there was some sort of need and Judas was the treasurer of the disciples. He was the, the keeper of the money bag. He'd been trusted with the, the distribution of the money of the poor and I'm sure that he'd pilfered before in the past. And he was looking for a great opportunity to pilfer again in the future. And so that's why he said this thing. That's why this is hypocritical love, saying one thing and doing another in your heart. And of course, that's what Judas did when he betrayed Jesus. Let's look at how Matthew tells the story. Matthew chapter 26 You can turn back there. Matthew 26, page 833. We pick it up in verse 47. We see it's a common common story again of Judas and Jesus. While he was still speaking, that is Jesus speaking, saying in verse 46, Let us be going, my betrayers at hand. He knew full well what was happening. He saw the crowds in the distant coming. He knew that Judas was there. And while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve. And with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and from the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign. This is Judas had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. Now in those days, a a kiss was a common greeting. Some way equivalent to our our handshake today. And in some countries we see this. The, The French will embrace one another and the Russians will kiss on the lips. Not, not sensual, not sexual at all, but just we'll do that. In fact, I remember being at a Russian wedding and um, seeing these, these men. I was kind of a, a distance away and seeing these men, and uh, they greeted one another, and they just kissed on the lips. And I was saying, I hope they don't do that when I come, <laughs> kind of along the line. And they didn't. They understand. But in Russia, that's what they do. It, and there's a way in which this greeting is much more intimate than a handshake as you're bringing face-to-face much closer It's a sign of affection, if you will. It's a sign of love. And Judas had told those who came to arrest Jesus, the one that I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And that's the epitome of hypocritical love, right? A sign of affection intended for death. Indeed, that's what happened. Look at verse 49. And we came up to Jesus at once. He greeted him, said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, Do what you came to do. Then they came up, laid their hands on Jesus, and seized him. And then took him off to be crucified. And I trust you can see how hypocritical and ungenuine that that act was. To to say one thing with your mouth, greetings, Rabbi, as if you're going to really love him and, and greet him. But he meant another thing with his actions, death to a friend. That's what Paul says in our text this morning. He says, don't do that. Let love be genuine. Let love be without hypocrisy. The, the definition of hypocrisy is to say one thing and do another. The Apostle John tells us not to do so. He says, little children, let us not love with word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. Right, let, let our love not just be talking love, but let, us be, let it be deed and truth sort of love. And in this case, Judas, he was a lot, a, a lot of love with talk, but not much love indeed. And it was obvious that he intended the death of Jesus A similar story is given in the Old Testament when Joab, the warrior, was on a quest to destroy Sheba for his rebellion against King David. And and on his quest to find Sheba, he came across one of Sheba's men, Amasa, who came to greet him. Listen to the story in 2 Samuel 20, verses 9 and 10, how Joab pretended his love. Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. So Joab struck him in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. Is it well with you, my brother? 
sticking a sword in him. Now, obviously, these are extreme examples of hypocritical love, right, that end in death. But it doesn't mean that we are free from such dangers. I remember coming into town as a young pastor, had the opportunity to meet Pat Clinton, who was the executive director of the Rockford Rescue Mission. He'd been a pastor for a number of years, and then he was, was there at the Rescue Mission and had a good visit with him. And, and among the things he told me, one of the things I remember is a bit of advice when he says, All right, when coming to pastor a new church, Steve, you beware of the man who hugs you with the biggest hug because that very man carries the biggest sword. Of course, he wasn't talking about killing like Judas or Joab, but the heart of deceit and hypocritical love can be alive and well in the church. And hypocritical love doesn't always aim for the destruction of others. In these cases, it can be expressed for its, for its own benefit. Uh, it's called flattery. Uh, one dictionary definition says flattery is excessive and insincere praise, especially that gives to further one's own interests. Right? In other words, you speak highly of others, so they'll look favorably upon you so that you can pass your own um, progress, your own, your own interests. Right? Because you know that the other person has the keys to your advancement. And the Proverbs speak over and over again of the evil of flattery, and the results are never good. Proverbs twenty six twenty eight: a lying tongue hates its victims, and a flattering tongue works ruin. A man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. And so when you're, when you're building others up for your own advancement... What happens then when your advancement comes and they just become another rung on the ladder that you can step on? That's the idea of, of flattery because people are, as soon as they're a tool in your hand, they're easily discarded. There's no benefit there. There's hypocritical love. It's temporary. It exists only on the surface. And it's not always obvious, by the way. 1 Corinthians 13. Let's turn there. This is called the love chapter. Page 959 of your, your pew Bibles. It's the where Paul poetically shows how great love is. And the chapter begins this way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Presumably here that angelic talk is sweet talk, filled with some niceties or the, the, the praises, whatever. Erudition comes from the mouth. Yet all the niceties in the world can come without love. Verse 2, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. In other words, the brightest intellect in the world can be without love. The brightest intellect in God's word can be without love. The, the greatest theologian in the world can be without love. A great man of faith can be without love. And the logic continues, verse 3, if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. And the difficulty here, verse 3, is that we often define love in these ways. Giving up yourself. Or, or, or giving away what you have. I mean, that's loving. I mean, who, who would deny that that's not loving? But, but Paul says that you can do these things, have great expressions of love in giving and sacrificing of yourself, and yet still not have love. Look at love on the outside. It looks like love, but it's really not love. You can be giving like the Pharisees who, who wanted everyone to know how much they were giving. Jesus said of them, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them for you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. right? Because they were giving away all they had, but they were giving away all they had so as to be seen. Actually, not all they had, but they were giving so as to be seen. And Jesus simply says, Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received the reward. In order to combat that then, he says, But 
when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. That your giving may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And you may give away, but you may give away because others see you and are, you're like the Pharisee. And everyone knows how much you're willing to give. And they, they praise you and all the while it's without love. It's hypocritical giving. And same, same is true about hypocritical serving or, or, or giving of yourself. As it says here in verse 3, If I deliver up my body to be burned. Now in those days there were martyrs. That's probably what it's talking about, martyrdom. But you can also just give up your body just in terms of service and help towards one another. And I remember years back um, boasting to another pastor of a, a man in our congregation who's not here anymore. But just boasting what a servant he was. It seemed like no sacrifice was too great for him. I said to this pastor, this man cannot serve anyone I've ever seen. And uh, his quick reply was wolves can come in the form of sheep. Sadly, this man's not in our congregation anymore. Maybe because he was willing to give up his body to be burned without love. Church family, I just say, let's not have hypocritical love. But let our love be genuine. That's what hypocritical love looks like. Let's think about genuine love here this morning. You say, what does genuine love look like? Well, let's, let's begin by just surveying some of the translations of verse 13, I'm sorry, verse 9 of Romans chapter 12. Um, these are particularly the, um, the paraphrase. They kind of give a commentary, give kind of a flavor of what this might mean. Literally, it's unhypocritical, but here's a flavor about what some have said. The New International Version says this, love must always be sincere. It's like genuine love. The New International Reader's Version said love must be honest and true. That's another... Translation: The living translations don't just pretend to love others; really love them. The message says this: Love from the center of who you are, and don't fake it. It's what genuine love is. It's deep. It's it's heartfelt. It comes from the the core of our being. And as Paul goes on in First Corinthians chapter thirteen. Uh, he just speaks about what genuine love looks like. He, he begins to define it after talking about the, the priority of love. You can do all these things without love. Then he says this is what love is. Verse 4, 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So here's 15 characteristics of, of genuine love. It's patient because it runs on the timetable of others, not on my timetable. Love is kind because it wants to help and serve others. Love, genuine love, does not envy because it's satisfied with what it has. There's no reason to envy what it doesn't have. Genuine love does not boast because it isn't concerned about what others think about him or them. Genuine love is not arrogant because it views others more important than himself. Genuine love is not rude because it's not self-absorbed. Genuine love does not insist on its own way because it isn't concerned um, because it isn't concerned about its own way, but it's concerned about the ways of others. Genuine love is not irritable because it's willing to overlook the flaws in others. 
Genuine love is not resentful because it rejoices in the well-doing of others. There's no reason to resent when others are doing well. Genuine love does not rejoice at wrongdoing because sin is never good for anyone. And genuine love rejoices with the truth because truth is always good. Genuine love bears all things because it stands for the best in others. It believes all things because it looks for the best in others. It hopes all things because it longs for the best in others. And it endures all things because it works for the best in others. That's genuine love. And, of course, the example of that is Jesus, particularly with his disciples. Think about it. Jesus was patient with his disciples even when they failed to understand his message. He was kind to his disciples even then when they wanted to use him to sit at his right hand in glory. Jesus did not envy his disciples because he understood their, their needs. He did not boast over his disciples because he understood their place. He was not arrogant towards his disciples because he understood their weaknesses. He was not rude towards his disciples because he was more concerned about them than he was about himself. He didn't insist on his own way because he wanted to give opportunity and freedom to his disciples. He wasn't irritable towards his disciples, even when they lacked faith because he knew their shortcomings. He wasn't resentful toward his disciples, even when they deserted him because he knew the scriptures that they had to be fulfilled. And he prayed for them. Jesus never rejoiced at the wrongdoing of the disciples because he never rejoiced in sin. He, he, never, um, he always rejoiced in the truth because he is the truth. Jesus bore all things with his disciples because he bore sin on his shoulders. He believed all things because he knew all things. He hoped all things because he discerned the future. And he endured all things because he saw the end. Jesus was the, the greatest display of of love. And a good example of that comes in John chapter 13. Page 900 of your pew Bibles, John chapter 13. Here's one of the, the greatest displays of love ever, I think, on this earth, save the cross of Christ. But this is in, in preparation for it. Verse 1 is one of the greatest statements of love in all the Bible. Now, before the feast of the Passover, John 13, 1, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And despite the foibles of the disciples, despite their weaknesses and their arrogance and their sin, Jesus loved them. He loved them to the end. The New American Standard footnotes this and says he loved them to the uttermost. It's difficult to know whether it's the end or the uttermost or how exactly to, to translate this, but it means that, that his love for the disciples was unmatched. It endured all times. He, he, nobody loved as he loved. His love never failed, and he loved them all the way to the cross. No one expression of his love takes place here in verse 2 and following. You probably know the story. Verse 2. It's an example of his love. During supper... When the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. And we know what that was about. Jesus, knowing that the father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples feet to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? 
And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew Judas. He knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, Not all of you are clean. Now, when he'd washed their feet and put his outer garment on and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. There's a lot going on in this passage. Okay, um, yeah, Judas betraying Jesus, loving Simon, talking about washing, and then comes the explanation. But the obvious point is this. Jesus did the lowliest of things, washing the disciples' dirty, smelly, disgusting feet. It's a demonstration to of his love to his disciples, even to his enemy, that would destroy him. Jesus' heart was pure. It was, it was genuine. And he calls us to do the same. Verse 15. I give you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. And later on in John chapter 13, if you look in verses 34 and 35, then he, he brings it all to, to love. And he says, um, a new commandment. I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have a love for one another. We as a church, we're called to love one another. Us. Right? You say, well, what, what does that look like? And, and I say it looks, uh, looks a lot different in, in, every, in every different circumstance. But we're, we're to love one other, the world might know about Rock Valley Bible Church that, that God is, is there. When each of us take the apron of a slave and serve one another from a pure heart. And you say, well, what does that look like? Lots of different things. It could be communication. It could be a phone call. It could be a note. It could be a visit. It could be a gift that's given. It could be a meal that's shared. It could be just time to sit and talk or time to take a walk or, or time to serve in some task. You have a skill that's needed and you come in to, to help that. It, it may be words of encouragement. It may even be Bible study together or prayer together. It, it may be just a, in helping a, a connection. Well, you need this here. Well, how about this person? You connect up with a need that's, that's met. It might be exercising together. It might be counsel. It might be many, many, many other things. It might be the one another's. You know, the scripture has, I think, 59 one another's about, about commandments of what it is to do with one another. And th- these are clear in the scripture. As it says, even in Romans 12, it's going to say, right, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Romans twelve sixteen, live in harmony with one another. Romans 15, verse 7, accept one another as Christ has accepted you. Greet one another. Romans 16, 16. 
Serve one another in love, Galatians 5.13. Carry each other's burdens, Galatians 6, verse 2. Be patient, bearing with one another, Ephesians 4.2. Be kind and compassionate towards one another, Ephesians 4, verse 32. In humility, consider others more important than yourself. Bear with one another, Colossians 3, verse 13. We go on and on and on and on. But of all these things, of all the one another's that, that are in the New Testament, I mean, there, there are two characteristics of what you need in order to have genuine love with one another. One is you need time. You need time together. You can't love with a genuine love without time. It doesn't work. Now, what's interesting about that, then, is you can only love a few with love because if it takes time, you, your circles can only be so big. You start thinking about who you haven't loved. It's, it's very difficult and convicting because you just need time. We all have limited time. But it takes time to love one another with a genuine love. Secondly, it takes contact. You can't love from afar. You need to have some contact. Whether it's electronic contact, whether it's physical contact, there is some being together that it, uh, that it requires. And so as you think about your love for others in the church, have you taken the time? Do you have the contacts? You know, one of the things we've done at church is to provide clear opportunities for everyone in the church to have time and contact with others in the church on a regular basis. Now, you might be doing this. That's wonderful. Well, uh, we do have some small groups. Just want to highlight those. They're going to start up again in the fall. And we're just uh, thinking about them. Uh, there's one that meets at our house. And uh, the one that meets at the Brown's house. And uh, Brian Mulder's left that to start one at his house. Um, we've got a Byron group in the, in the south that meets and uh, a group that Darren's helping form uh, up in the north. And, and the whole idea of this is to allow us a time and a place to have contact with people on a regular basis. Now, can you love without going to a small group? Absolutely. But a small group really helps to allow you to just really think about one another's lives. I know at, at, at the small groups, right, we share what's going on with each other's lives. We pray for each other. We are encouraged by the scriptures. And oftentimes they're to see needs that can be met in one of these different ways. That's a meal or a visit or a call or a word of encouragement or a contact or a help or service or whatever. Those type of things start at the small groups. And even one of the, one of the things we, we do with the small groups, we want to provide opportunities for those who are newer to the church to be able to plug in. Right? You're new to the church, welcome. What should you do? Well, attend a small group someplace so you get to know fewer people on a couch in a smaller more intimate settings so you might have time to develop and foster relationships with one another that you might be able to discern how it is that I might might serve and help other people. So that's just one real application of that. You know, other things, you know, say the, the fellowship dinner is about that, to be around one another, to have time and contact with one another. The progressive dinner that's coming up, and I'm just reading here on the, the back of the bulletin, the progressive dinner that's coming up. Um, September 15th, that's like uh, two weeks from Saturday. Just a time for us to be together, to, to know one another, to see one another's needs so that we can love one another, that our love might be genuine for one another. It's interesting that the, the church in Corinth lacked a, a love for one another, and they were rebuked for it. That's in the context of the Lord's Supper, which we're going to celebrate here just in a, a few moments. You can turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 11. And Paul's talking about the, the Lord's Supper. And when you think about it through the context of genuine love, he says that wasn't taking place. He says, in the following instructions, I do not commend you. 
Because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine may be recognized. But when you come together, it's not for the Lord's Supper that you eat. In eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? See, they weren't loving towards one another. They're just consuming. He says, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. He's just talking about the context of the Lord's Supper as a context of love. And then he goes on, verse 23, about what the Lord's Supper is about. And we will, we will eat and drink. As Paul tells us to, as Jesus tells us to. Paul says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. We'd given thanks. He broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He's just he's anticipating the cross, breaking the body, just like his body would be crushed on the cross. The same way he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The cup represented the new covenant, the promises from Jeremiah and Ezekiel. The, the, the promise that God's going to put his word on our hearts. We're going to have a heart desire to serve him. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It says, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many were sick and they died. So that's the Lord's Supper that we're going to celebrate. What a, a great application here from love. Where they have a genuine love for others. So let's bow. Prayer. <clears throat> See, reflect upon this. Reflect upon love and what sort of love you have, whether it's genuine. I just even confess to pastor how difficult it is sometimes to love. Do you even think about um, hypocritical love and how I love because people here and support this ministry. And when people leave, there's not that burden anymore. Just how, how hard it is, I confess that. Maybe you might want to be thinking about those in your circle. Whether you have, an un, whether you have a hypocritical love or whether you have a, a genuine love, just encourage you to confess that to the Lord. Because Christ Jesus died for unhypocritical, for hypocritical lovers like me. He died so that our sins can be wiped away, that we might be made pure, the cross of Christ. And it's the bread that represents his body, it's the cup that represents the his blood. Before than that, the sacrifice of the, the new covenant. God, which we stand, and it is so, so wonderful that we, we stand there. So, Lord, I would pray to you now. I pray that you would convict our hearts where they need to be convicted, that sins would be confessed before you, that we would come simply saying that we got, I, I have nothing, O oh Lord. There's, there's nothing in my life apart from you and your grace and your goodness and your kindness. God, we thank you for the Lord Jesus that we who are under your wrath 
that have now escaped the wrath because your righteousness has been revealed in Jesus, that you poured out your wrath in his body so that by faith we might walk away righteous and pure, not because of the works we do in righteousness, but solely by your mercy. Father, I pray that our love, God, for one another would be genuine, that it would be mercy-empowered towards others. God, help us to extend that, that we as a church might know unity and love and grace towards one another. God, because we need you, we need your help, we need your grace. And just would pray as we, as we celebrate this Lord's Supper. God, um, we know that you are not tangibly in the, the bread and the, the cup. God, as if this transforms in, into that. And yet, God, we know this is a sacred moment and you are here. And God, I pray that you would encourage our hearts. God, accept our worship before you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.